You are about to listen to the Friends of Anchor podcast, which keeps you up to date with the inspirational work of the Friends of Anchor charity and everything that it's doing to support cancer and haematology care in the northeast of Scotland. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Friends of Anchor podcast. In this episode, we will be hearing from Yvonne Wright, Chief Nurse for Aberdeen Royal Infirmary's clinical support team, as well as exploring whether, somewhat counterintuitively, silence can be an important factor in the conversations that we have in and around our experience of a serious illness. And have you heard of Sir Percival Pott? Neither had I, but I'm now convinced that he should be far better known and I will be telling you why I have come to that conclusion. But first of all, please accept my sincere apologies that we're not going to start with our usual news and update slot from Erica Banks. By way of compensation, though, we will be bringing you a bumper instalment with Erica in next month's episode. I hope that's okay with you, and if it isn't, please feel free to follow the example of Alfred the Hot Water Bottle in the Australian Children's TV programme Johnson & Friends, and complain to someone. Anyway, returning to the real world, I was delighted to be able to speak recently to Yvonne Wright, who, as you will hear, is a key person when it comes to staffing matters relating to haematology and oncology at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. She explains the wide-ranging and significant nature of her role in our conversation, but first off, I asked her to introduce herself by telling us a bit about herself, her background, and her nursing and management career. So I'm Yvonne Wright. I'm a local quine. I'm originally from a village outside West Hill, which is Kirkton But my family came from Turriff area, Cumston area. And as you can tell from my voice, I'm really country. And people laugh about me sometimes and laugh at my voice because I, I try to put my posh voice on. Come on, listen, we've, <laughs> we've had Louise Budge a dirty weaker on the on the podcast, so you're, you're normal by comparison. So I'm pretty country and I suppose I've always had that kind of country value around working hard and also trying your best for people because you work in a small community. And I grew up there and then I got married and have got three grown-up children and recently became a grandmom. So I'm so delighted with that. I've got a little baby Eleanor, so she's lovely. But I think that also puts everything into perspective as well when you've got a little one around that you you know that life's moving on for yourself as well and it makes you look differently at life as well. So you you grab everything and and you, you run with it. I now live in a village called Sochen. I would say Sochen. Most people would say Sochen. <laughs> and I, I love it being out back out to the country. It also gives you an opportunity to, when you're driving home, you can, I can switch off as well. And I listen to the radio quite loudly. Yeah, and I've interests in gardening. I actually started nursing in 1983. I started off as an auxiliary nurse um, and then went in to do my training in November 1983. After I qualified, I was very fortunate in getting a post out at Old Roxburgh House, which was out at Tornady Hospital, Miltimber. It's all lovely flats now, I believe. I started my career there in a respiratory ward there and Roxburgh House. And then I moved to the city hospital, where there again was respiratory. The city hospital was one of the oldest hospitals in the city. It's now flats as well, so it just shows you how time's evolved in the last 40 years. There's a pattern emerging there. There is. Um, and then after that, I went and worked at the maternity hospital for a while and the community and then worked in the nurse bank for a few years. And then I came back to the dark side, came back to ARI and have been there for the last 10 years um, working in clinical support services as a chief nurse. 
and tell me a bit more about that role in terms of what that means, clinical support services, etc. So clinical support services is part of the integrated specialist care portfolio at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. We've got all the interesting bits, radiology, labs. We've also got infection control. We've got the oncology and haematology unit. We've also got various things like allied health professionals. So we've got dietitians, etc. that fall under our remit. So we've got not a huge bed base, actually, in clinical support services. We've got more clinics and outpatient services as well. And we also have secondary care hubs, the new hubs in the community that um, patients go for bloods and things. So it's, it's a varied, very varied bag of things, but a very interesting place to work. No, it sounds like it. And your particular role within that is, is what? Exactly? Okay, so I'm a chief nurse. So the chief nurses are responsible for the management of the nursing staff within the portfolio. So I would be responsible for, for listeners that are listening for the anchor unit, for example, um, wards 112 and 114, and then 308, 310 and 307. All the outpatient departments in the ARI, radiology department where nurses are, and the secondary care hub. So it's, it's quite a big number of staff that fall under my management remit. Obviously, I'm ably assisted by Katie and Andrea, the two nurse managers in the portfolio. And is it mostly just making sure that you've got the right staff in the right place? It, it's a variety of things. It's, it is absolutely that. We have to have skilled staff to look after patients and the right numbers. But it's also around um, looking at innovation, what else we can do to make patient experience better. And also what we can do in a, a multi-agency way when we work with our colleagues in the community as well to make a patient's experience the best it can be. And what drew you to uh, being involved in oncology in particular? Very beginning of my career, I worked out in Roxburgh House, which um, was a palliative care unit then, and there's still a palliative care unit in Aberdeen. And I worked with a variety of patients with oncology issues um, throughout my career, and that included respiratory. When I worked in the community, I worked with the homelessness um, practice and we had a lot of gentlemen there when I worked there who unfortunately had cancer as well. I've always had a real interest in how we make things better for people and how we try and improve services. When I became a chief nurse, I was actually lucky and fortunate that clinical sports services actually inherited the anchor unit as part of a redesign. So I was just absolutely delighted. So you're a chief nurse, so you sit at management level. How does your job impact the patient's journey, would you say? I think everybody's got a role to play. It doesn't matter what level you're working at. Everybody's got a role to play in influencing patient care and the patient's journey. Our domestic staff, our nursing staff, our doctors, our AHP colleagues, the man that comes and paints the rooms prior to our stem cell transplants, we all have a role and a part to play in the patient's journey. The difference, I suppose, for management is that we have got a key role in looking at funding, how we can actually make a bigger difference for people. And that sounds really silly, but we're always looking for the next horizon. We're always looking around the corner to see is there something else we could bring to Aberdeen. Our haematology department, for example, are going through JC accreditation, which means that patients with haematological conditions should have state-of-the-art treatment, and that includes for stem cell transplants, and etc. So it really is important for me and for others in management positions not to lose sight that it's the patient in the bed, the patient in the chair that's important. It should all be about the patient. And I think being a nurse, if you lose that, you should stop being a nurse. There are meetings that I go to that there's no patients there, but I hopefully become an advocate for patients when we're looking at anything at all around management structure or any treatments for patients. 
And during your time as chief nurse for the anchor unit, how has the unit and I suppose NHS provision as well evolved over the years? As I say, I've been a nurse for about 40 years now and I think the treatment options has grown enormously since then. People didn't have the chance to have the treatments we've got now. We're treating people longer and keeping people healthier for a longer length of time. There are options now for patients to go to other centres that possibly that wouldn't happen 40 years ago. You know, you would have got treated in Aberdeen and that was it. We have people going to Glasgow now and further afield for treatment. We always did have island patients, but I think they're given opportunities now they didn't have before coming to Aberdeen. Our Elgin patients can have some treatments closer to home in Dr Gray's, but equally they've got the opportunity to come to Aberdeen as well. So I think actually horizons have opened up a lot. I think we were quite insular before and we we just stuck to Aberdeen. I think the consultants make a terrific job at seeking out treatments elsewhere, getting second opinions. They canvas for their patients. They're a real advocate for their patients. So I think the treatment options have changed significantly. People are living longer with life-limiting conditions they didn't before and they're making the best of it as well. Thanks to things like Friends of Anchor, we are very lucky that we can support some of that travelling as well. Friends of Anchor do a lot to support the travel and transport, etc. for our patients. And just going on to Friends of Anchor, you've obviously been very aware of them over the years. And again, their support and provision has changed. What comments do you have on, on that? Certainly, when it was first founded, it felt like it was a lot smaller. It was intimate, very intimate with patients. But what I see now is a really, really robust organisation that's governed. There's nothing that Friends of Anchor will just go ahead and run and do. They certainly work in partnership with the medical staff and the nursing staff in the unit. I think the breadth of support that they give patients and staff has grown over the years. From small acorns, it's grown a great big tree and there are lots of shoots off that tree. So I think the Friends of Anchor has got a reputable voice in the northeast of Scotland for oncology and haematology. And I think they do a wonderful job. You were just saying to me before that even during COVID that continued. Yes. So during COVID, it was very difficult for patients. They felt isolated and staff actually. Our staff felt quite isolated at times. They were just coming to work, going home. Friends of Anchor just brought up a worry of sunshine. They teamed up with one of their catering teams that they work with and there was food put to the hospital. There was little food things for people to take home because at the end of a shift, some shops were closed. So they were just brilliant to the staff as well. Patients continued to get their packs and information. So it was a scary time because patients were scared, but actually that kind of ray of sunshine was there at the back of it was Friends of Anchor, you know, with the packs. And the only thing that stopped was the complementary therapies, which was difficult. But we were just speaking about this quite recently. We've just kind of welcomed everybody back with open arms and patients are getting their nails done, they're getting their treatments and it's really making them feel so much better on their journey at the moment. Yeah, we're back to normal now. Yeah, and the masks And the masks have disappeared. (laughs) That was the best bit. The masks last week. We were asking people what the best thing that happened last week was and everybody said masks off. So it was good. And I'm going to ask you an impossible question, Yvonne. You're aware of the four pillars of Friends of Anchor, the four funding pillars. So we've got research and equipment and clinical excellence and well-being. Is there one of those you perhaps feel particularly passionate about? I think they're equally really important. Uh, Uh, I'm sitting on the fence here. Um, They're equally important. I mean, the research and certainly the clinical excellence and the opportunity that's given staff to go and seek out other training in different centres. 
We've been very lucky in nursing. We've had nurses do clinical fellowships within the unit. So that's given a really wide experience of what our unit has and what treatments we do across the unit. And that's inpatients and outpatients. But if I had to choose one, it would probably be well-being. Why? Being a nurse, I think in any job in nursing, I think the well-being of staff and patients has to be paramount. And going up to 308 or 310 on a daily basis and seeing people actually sitting and getting that relax or friends of anchor, well-being workers working directly with patients, I think you can't beat that. And the same for staff as well. There's been retreats for patients. There's been equally days for staff, music therapy. Friends of Anchor have done so much. So for me, the well-being bit, as I say, equally the research is definitely a part of it. But I think hands-on nursing, it has to be the well-being part, I think. Great. You uh, got out of that well and answered that uh, (laughs) brilliantly. Thank you. And perhaps you can share with us maybe one story that stands out for you regarding the way that Friends of Anchor supporters had an impact upon a patient or loved ones or staff. I think it's really difficult to pick one. Again, sitting on the fence, I think it's invaluable the amount of support that patients and staff get. I think in particular we've had a a few young people in quite recently who I think have benefited just from the chat of the wellbeing staff. It's a difficult time for anybody, but I think if you're a young person in an adult service, it's even more difficult. And I'm thinking about some of the young gentlemen that's been in, I I don't want to name MD, but some of the young men that's been in recently. And as you know, men find it quite difficult to share feelings. Indeed. Um, So I think certainly there's a couple of the young guys, I would say, that I think has certainly benefit from Friends of Anchor at a very low point in their lives when, you know, they've been given a really tricky diagnosis and difficult for their families. And they've tried to be strong for their families. But actually, I think the chance that they've had to speak to the Friends of Anchor wellbeing team had a bit of a laugh and that's really important, a bit of humour. Yeah, So I think that bit, particularly with young men, as I say, I think women are able to express their feelings and they can speak to other women. And I think men are far more isolated, generally anyway. But I think if you're young and you don't have that life experience of being able to share things, I think, yeah, the young men, I think they made such a huge difference to them. And I think that was evident at the Friends of Anchor Brave event, which took place a few weeks ago now. I was actually lucky to be a volunteer there with a red T-shirt on and you could see the joy in people's faces. And I was actually fortunate to get to Brave and Courage on the Catwalk, but you can see that the men actually were shining. They were actually shining that they night, were. so it was brilliant. And indeed, one or two of them spoke about just the support they'd had and how they, they had been able to talk about it, which made all the difference. Yeah, I think I was very fortunate as well that I was asked by Friends of Anchor to be part of that panel to select people. And, you know, reading people's stories and the amount of support that the men had received, I think, was a testament to what Friends of Anchor do on a daily basis. Equally, the Courage in the Catwalk ladies looked fabulous. They did indeed. Um, but certainly for me, women do manage to share feelings more than men, So especially Northeast men. So part certainly resonated with me. And what would you like to say to anyone who has donated to Friends of Anchor? Anyone who's given to the charity? I don't think it matters what you donate. So it can be money, it can be a pound and a tin. I think it's the volunteering. I know that Friends of Anchor celebrate volunteering a lot, but I don't think as a society we actually necessarily do that. So I think the volunteers that put in hours every week, standing in 308, 310, welcoming patients, and throughout COVID they did a fabulous job about temperatures and helping people assisting people a very difficult time so it's not necessarily donating money it's donating your time 
And also for the big donors, they're fabulous. They, they give lots of money, which enables us to keep reward assistants that are employed through Friends of Anchor and NHS Grampian jointly. Friends of Anchor pay for their salaries, but we manage them as part of our team and they're very much part of our team. So for the pound going in the tin, to the volunteers, to the big donors, I'd just like to say thank you and keep it coming because without that, Friends of Anchor cannot give the support to our patients and staff that they do. Yvonne, that's been great. Thank you very much indeed. Is there anything you just want to add, given your role? I wondered whether you maybe wanted to have a message for staff, the nurses, etc., within the hospital. I feel I'm blessed every day to work with those people that are trying to make a difference to not only patients, but they actually make a difference to each other's lives because they support each other through quite difficult situations. So I think that with that kind of teamwork and senior charge nurses who guide that team, then, you know, we're very lucky. We just take it for granted that they turn up and do those jobs. But as you say, they're not easy jobs. They're not easy jobs, but they don't make it look difficult because they're there for their patients and they're there for the staff team as well. As I say, I'm very blessed and that's not been glib or anything about it. I just am. And as I say, we work with Friends of Anchor as well and they're very much part of our team. I don't see it as a separate entity. You know, the, the ward assistants that we've got working in the wards are very much part of the team as are the other people with the red tees on, the volunteers. They're very much part of our team. I suppose it's difficult to put everything in words in such a kind of short time frame. You know, I'm a mum. I'm now a new grandma myself. And we always think about others and don't necessarily think about ourselves. And I think that's probably another thing for staff to think about, that they need to look after themselves. It's not easy being in a caring profession nowadays. So I think that's my message is that staff well-being is really, really important. And without them being well and look after themselves and each other, then they can't look after patients. I suppose that's my take-home message. Just look after yourself, whether you're a staff member or a patient. When it comes to our From the Archives feature, the time has come, I reckon, to embark on a mini-season within a season, inspired by the theme of local place names and communities. Let me explain what I mean. So we've just heard from Yvonne that her family came from Cummonston, near Turriff, that she grew up in Kirkton of Skeen, and now lives in Socken, although she would call it Sachen. No doubt Yvonne will be in touch to let me know that I mangled that pronunciation. And last month we heard from Graham and Stuart Strachan that they proudly trace their roots back to Glenkindy, although Graham now lives in Monny Musk. What's my point? It is simply that Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire seem to have a particularly rich collection of hamlets, villages, towns and communities that have their own attractive identity and character, often with their own distinctive names, which may or may not be pronounced in the way that you would have expected from the spelling. What that means is that any trawl through the Friends of Anchor archives is likely to include a number of such locations. For example, the From the Archives instalment from episode 3 included mention of a fundraising barbecue, dance and raffle that had been held in Tully Nestle. While episode 9 celebrated the efforts of Willie Singer and the dance committee from Ochenblay, who had put on a stovey dance in aid of Friends of Anchor. The plan, therefore, is to highlight a number of other community-linked initiatives in support of Friends of Anchor that have occurred over the years, and we start off with a 2010 item that recorded the efforts of singer Sandy Donald and accordionist Rob McCombie, who raised more than £1,500 by selling a CD of their favourite boffy ballads, which they had recorded together. 
On this occasion, our geographical excursion has a distinctly Deeside theme, as Sandy hailed from Des and Rob from Dinnet, each of which you pass as you drive along the A93 between Bankry and Ballater. Another local community or communities will be highlighted in this slot next month, but just now we move on to Finding the Words, in which, rather oddly perhaps, my wife Alison and I talk more about silence than words on this occasion. So Alison, I hope that you picked up on something that Stuart Strachan said during the inspirational and moving interview that he and his brother Graham gave in last month's episode. He described receiving an ice cream after some treatment as being the equivalent of being given a bar of gold. So maybe ice cream should have a place in our discussions after all. You're clearly just trying to wind me up. So all that I will say is that despite what you said last time, it remains 100% the case that relying on a bowl of ice cream to make you feel better when you should be heading into hospital is definitely a case of throwing common sense out of the window. (laughs) Moving on quickly then, let's introduce our topic for this week. And it's one that people might find a little surprising. Yes, it might seem a bit odd that we're going to talk about silence in a feature called Finding the Words, but I think we each feel that it's quite important to acknowledge that sometimes we run out of words, or maybe even don't need them. Yes, it's been a really interesting one to think about, and I actually don't feel that I've got my head completely around what we should be saying about it. But I do know that silence was part of the conversations that we had while I was undergoing treatment, and especially while I was in hospital. I find it quite hard to stand back and be objective about that time, so it's probably best if you start us off, if you're happy to do so. I am, but I agree that it's not entirely straightforward to pin down what it is that we want to say. But let's start with this. Sometimes the silence was, let's call it normal silence. I'd come to visit, we had chatted, and there wasn't necessarily much else we wanted or needed to say, especially as there were many times when we felt that we were stuck in Groundhog Day, as nothing much had changed from one day to the next and neither of us was able to get up to anything exciting, exotic, or even just different. And I'm not sure that I fully appreciated the value of those silences. In retrospect, I think that I sometimes brought your visits to an end when we could have remained just sitting together for a while. Yes, I was very happy to do that, and was often very keen to do so, but I understood that you were tired or wanted to be able to switch off. As I said in an earlier episode... If you had asked me how I was dealing with being in hospital and having visitors, I would have said that I was always keen to see people, was relaxed about people coming and going, and didn't put up any barriers that might restrict my interaction with others. However, thanks to some recent honest feedback from family members, I'm aware that I came across as being very determined to do everything my own way. Now there's a surprise. I'm very focused on preserving and channeling my energy. And I understood why you took that approach, but it did mean that sometimes it felt as if we were fighting each of our battles on our own, rather than sharing them, as we would normally do. And it's a funny thing, but when we were able to be silent together, it increased a sense of being in it together, certainly as far as I was concerned. And then there was another kind of silence we experienced, I would say. That was a harder silence, I felt. It was a silence of apprehension, pain or exhaustion, depending on the stage that I had reached in my treatment, and how long a particularly low period had lasted. Normally, I think that I would just know that we needed to sit through that together. But again, I think that I probably went into survival mode and concentrated on gathering together all of my own internal resources, rather than letting you fully into the situation. And again, I understood that you weren't deliberately putting up the shutters, and that you probably felt at times that you were actually protecting me. 
but I really did just want to be with you and for us to go through it together. It feels as if there's more to say about the importance of silence during testing times, but I think that's probably as much as I've got just now. Yes, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why silence matters. But for me, it was a combination of factors, I think. It gave us breathing space so that we could just be together and share time together. It would often create a sense of calm, of space, of connectedness. And it also made me feel as if we were being given time to process things together, despite the fact that we weren't speaking. And yes, there were certainly times when we would feel sadness or frustration or bewilderment during a silence. But for me, the key thing was that it was a shared silence. And it is strange, but saying nothing can sometimes say so much. And somehow, thoughts and feelings can be expressed through silence. Yes, I really think that is true. Everyone is different, and not everyone will find silence helpful. But I was surprised by how much of an impact positive and negative silence had on me at times. So it seemed worth sharing some thoughts about it. And if you would like to share any of your own thoughts that have been prompted by this conversation please do get in touch by emailing us at foapodcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. In rounding off this month's episode with our regular and finally item, I thought that I would ask why most of us won't know anything about Sir Percival Pott. I'm assuming that like me, you haven't heard of him, and yet this 18th century English surgeon, who sounds like a character from Cluedo or The Wacky Races, was responsible for moving on our understanding of cancer in a highly significant manner. So here we go. Three reasons why we should know about Sir Percival Pott and celebrate his achievements. Reason number one, his self-help medical care was second to none. Having been thrown from his horse on his way to visit a patient, he sustained an open compound fracture of the lower leg. Those who came to his aid wanted to move him right away, but instead he insisted that they build a makeshift stretcher from a door and poles sourced from a nearby building site. The standard course of treatment at the time was amputation. But again, Pott resisted this, opting instead for treatment that used traction and pressure to correct the positioning of the bones. He made a full and thorough recovery at a time when such an outcome was very much a long shot. Reason number two. He was so good at identifying, analysing and describing medical conditions that two significant conditions were named after him in response to his breakthrough writings about them. Pot disease is arthritic tuberculosis of the spine, while a pot fracture is a fracture dislocation of the ankle, which is somewhat less severe than the type of leg break that he himself suffered. Reason number three. The most significant of all of Pott's discoveries was his identification of chimney soot as an environmental carcinogen that was causing testicular cancer in chimney sweeps. This was the first time that a link had been established between cancer and an occupation, and Pott's work led to crucial changes in public health policies and practice, as well as preparing the way for the development of occupational medicine and disease prevention initiatives in the workplace. So there you have it. We owe more to Sir Percival Pott than we ever realised. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Please get in touch with your thoughts, feedback, questions and suggestions via email at foapodcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk and please do join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you and your podcast where you want to go. 